0: So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Welcome back to Who Company. This is Brent. And this is Drew. For most of us, this is a time of self-isolation as we, and hopefully you, are practicing social distancing to halt the spread of the coronavirus. It's actually a perfect time to be a podcaster, assuming your internet is reliable and doesn't cut out, which mine does at the end of this interview. Our guest this month knows a thing or two about the spread of infectious diseases and also a lot about Doctor Who. Robert Smith joins us to discuss his favorite show and the new book he's written. And then we move
1: on to Robert's Pick of the Month, the mid-90s apocalyptic thriller created by Chris Carter, Millennium. We talk about the incredible Lance Henriksen and some of the scariest stuff shown on television, including a horrible fast-spreading virus that hits a little too close to home these days. Find out why he loves it and if it would stand up today. And all that's coming up right after this. Who is that? His name is Watts. He had some information for me. sat out there for over an hour. could have come to the door. I don't think you wanted to impose. I can handle imposition, Frank. What I can't handle is secrecy. I don't keep secrets, Catherine. I'll tell you anything you want. You think you're protecting me, but you make it worse, Frank. You can't shut the world out for me. You can't ask me to pretend that I don't know what you do. Everyone pretends. We all make-believe. These men I help catch make us. We're raising a daughter, Frank. The real world starts to seep in. You can't stop it.
0: make-believe, that I can. We're living in strange times, so I guess it's appropriate that this month's guest's last name ends with a question mark. He's a mathematician specializing in the spread of infectious diseases, an editor for numerous fan anthologies, and an author. His latest book, co-written with Graham Burke, takes a look at Doctor Who's series uh, 7 through 11. Robert Smith, welcome to Who and Company. Thank you very much for having me. How are you holding up? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm great.
2: I, I've, I've been studying epidemics for 20 years, so it's very surreal watching something you've studied theoretically unfold in real time. Um, but I have to say, I'm kind of excited. It's, it's an interesting time. Um, I'm not nearly as panicked as most people because, you know, I mean, I've lived in Africa, I've lived in war zones, I've lived in the Ebola epidemic, I've lived, you know, in lockdown because you're going to get shot by police. Uh, you know, this is pretty mild in the scheme of things.
0: Sure, sure. I figured if there was anybody here, uh who who could handle their own during this time it would be you I think it's it's uh it's quite interesting that we we set up this interview months in advance and it just seems like perfect timing to have you on (laughs) during this (laughs) the (laughs) COVID-19 quarantine so yeah and (laughs) what a what a choice of your pick of the month we'll we'll get to that
2: absolutely (laughs) we'll get to that
0: uplifting (laughs) uh television series of yours (laughs) Whoo boy though admittedly we did do survivors on our like our second episode so (laughs) (laughs) so uh with with everyone indoors and communicating via the internet uh and and this sort of quarantine uh what are you doing to stay entertained and busy uh, well, I'm
2: busier than most people, actually, because uh, my, my day job is, you know, researching infectious diseases. So they have really called on me. And they, they actually they called on me just um, before things kind of turned crazy, because they were they were needing you know, models run to determine should we start closing things. So you know, the university asked me to run an assessment, and then I was like, "Yeah, we should cut contacts by at least fifty percent." The next day, they closed the entirety of campus. So you know, gotcha. it was, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I mean, you know, I think I've just written my second article on this disease and sent that off. It's, it's there's a lot going on for me. Um, I'm also at the same time transitioning to online teaching, which is taking an a, enormous amount of work um, because my usual style of teaching is turn up in the classroom and be brilliant, and right. you can't do that anymore. And there's three hundred students who need individual attention so um yeah and also you know writing books and you know keeping sane that way I, i'm sort of taking it as an opportunity to catch up on all the you know all, all the all the tv shows i haven't watched and all the writing i need to do and all the other things and i find i have less time than normal so uh, you know <laughs> that's
0: <how we> go. <laughs> yeah i'm i am definitely busier now than i i was before all this started uh, brent how about you i, I feel like we, we haven't caught up with you in a while how are you doing all right
1: Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on with this virus thing, and and a lot here at home. We're remodeling the bathroom and the bedroom, so we're having to go out um, more than usual to get things, and I think we're about done with that. And then I split my foot wide open last week on a bed rail, so I had to go to the emergency room around other people, and so that was a bit stressful,
0: but uh, we're hanging in there. (laughs) Yeah, my wife accidentally stabbed herself uh, last uh, about 10 10 days or so. We had to go to the urgent care amid all of this. Uh, I fell down the stairs this morning, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) just, you know, I I feel like my brain has not been present. So I've got like deadlines for articles that are due tonight. And I've got deadlines for articles that were due like two months ago. And I just can't seem to focus on any one thing. And that's been a bit of a problem. But I've got a lot – like you, I've got a lot of home things that I can work on. So, you know, being indoors hasn't been that restrictive. uh so i mean i
2: think i think for you know fans like us it's not so bad right we're like all right okay we got stuff to do we can write (laughs) enough computers and stuff like that i feel for all the extroverts you
0: know yeah (laughs) yeah it's true loves
2: being outside and playing sports in a team or whatever like oh this must be really tough yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i I, it definitely like you know introverts this is your time check on the extroverts Uh, it definitely makes sense um i've uh, my wife is also a professor, and so she's been moving to online classes. Are you doing synchronous classes, or are you? Uh...
2: We were mostly through the semester, and I was actually a bit ahead anyway. So I just, I just, I mean, I, I courses end this week so so i just said it's uh, self-directed learning i'm available by skype for any questions you have um i mean i put all my notes up online so you know they have everything and then they can just ask me individual questions and I, so i've sort of recorded record some some lectures i'll do some topics kind of thing but it's more like extra practice the, the amusing thing was that we'd scheduled a midterm for what turned out to be the very first day of online classes and so i was like ah do I have the midterm or not? I decided yes, I'm going to and thank goodness I did because it was a great trial run for the final exam mm-hmm. figure out how do we do open book math midterm, um, you know, they can <laughs> text each other if they want like, you know, and we just did the same old midterm, and it was really amusing because the average was exactly the same. <laughs> so oh, really? The midterm. Yeah, there was no change whatsoever. I was really worried that everyone would get 100% and, and I'd made two versions and I said, well, if you know, if your student number is even do version A and if your student number is odd do version B and I got a flurry of emails saying how do I tell if my student number is even or odd? I thought, well, I think I think we'll be fine. We won't get a hundred percent all over the board.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> my, my, my sister said, "Your five-year-old nephew can tell the difference between even odd." <laughs> <So, laughs>
1: well, before we get to your new book, we were curious to learn a little more about your relationship with Doctor Who. So, when did you first start watching?
2: Oh, I started watching when I was five years old. Um, I actually went and tracked down the exact day that I did it. It was it was June nineteen seventy-eight, um, and so. Uh, my, my father was actually a fan he, he was a, a fan of William Hartnell um and just you know liked William Hartnell's movies and you know tv shows and just watched everything William Hartnell was in so when Doctor Who came along he watched Doctor Who and so you know I, I find this quite fascinating that, that I have a fan gene apparently even though my father never really struck me as particularly like a fan like I would understand it um and he was just watching Doctor Who for old time's sake one day and I was you know five years old and I was like what is this show like this is the greatest thing I've ever seen and it was the Green Death episode 6 and You know, I'm sort of watching the maggots and I'm watching soldiers. And I'm like, oh, but I was like, no no, I can't I can't I have too many TV shows on the go I, I just can't I can't commit to a new one and then I was like, oh no, but I need to I need to watch a bit more And then I saw I saw the thing that made me a lifelong fan. I saw the giant fly and mm. I was like I have never seen anything so amazing <laughs> So I have never looked back since
0: so are you saying as a five-year-old you prioritized the amount of television that you were watching?
2: Absolutely. I, you know, I started as I meant to go on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> at that time, at that age, I didn't have television, so I was just like, whatever. But, you know, if, if it was on at a restaurant, I was glued. If it was on at a friend's house, it was glued. didn't matter yeah. what it was. Well, we, we only had like, the white
2: TV, so so I'd go to friends' houses occasionally. And they'd have color TV, and I was like, "Tom Baker has a colorful scarf. Who knew?" Like, <laughs>
0: this <is amazing>. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, what? What aside from giant flies? What was it that that kind of kept bringing you back? Was it? Did your father have to encourage you to continue watching it, or you were just t- no? No, I think
2: <laughs> I think he was like, "What have I done? I've, I've created <laughs> a monster here." <laughs> I mean, I mean in Australia they showed Doctor Who every single night, um, so wow. it, was, it was weeknights at 6.30 So you would just tune in and watch Doctor Who and and, and the thing is lots of people would watch it too So after a while, there were, you know, friends were watching it But I think the thing that really struck home for me the most was he was he was a hero who you know Didn't use guns and didn't fight back and didn't you know like and I remember there, there was a, you know School bully tried to like, you know Like he tried to pick a fight with me and he threw something at me and I was like in that instant I thought what would the doctor do he would duck and I ducked and it went over my head, and I thought, that's enough. I don't need to fight back. I don't need to do anything. I just need to duck. And it's pretty much been my, my you know, kind of lifelong commitment ever since. I'm very committed to nonviolence and compassion and helping the world and you know, doing the best you can. I, I feel like that got embedded into my DNA from being a fan at such a young age.
0: It sounds like the, the doctor was like really, really influential on you as a, as a human being.
2: Yes, yes. It, it was it was stunningly influential. And, you know, and, and I sort of feel like, okay, well, who am I today? I'm, I'm an eccentric professor who, you know, travels around trying to help out. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, I've, you know, kind of become the nearest thing that I can. Um, I didn't realize I would have to, you know, <laughs> help solve diseases in my own city. But, you know, that's, that's the world we now live in. Um,
1: Is there a particular doctor that's your favorite?
2: Uh, I'm not really a, a favorite kind of a person, it, you know, uh, it's it's a very complicated question, it's like asking who's your favorite sibling mm-hmm. um, and So, uh, But I mean, uh, you know, Tom Baker had a massive influence on me as a child, even, even though John Pett was my first doctor um, And then, you know, like, I mean, I love Sylvester McCoy, I mean, in the new series, Christopher Eccleston just kind of blew me out of the water And Matt Smith was amazing, I really like Jodie Whittaker, so, you know, like like, it probably depends, you know, what day you ask me and, you know, and I'd and say there's, there's different arguments for all of them, you know, on particular days might be like, oh, well, you know, this one's amazing too. So.
0: What, so we're talking about kind of the, there's a bunch of different stories about Doctor Who. Um, do you have a particular favorite type of story? Like, so like, you know, I, I for one, really like the humorous ones. Uh, as opposed to, say, a base under siege or a blank, blank, blank. Is there something that, like, kind of go, ooh, ticks your box? Because I know you're a spoiler phobe and you don't like looking ahead. So when, as they, <laughs> as a story starts to unravel, is, is there one form or another that kind of gets you excited?
2: I would say that's that's a very excellent question. Um, I, I think for me, it's probably particularly clever stories. Um, mm. I, I mean, I I like the humor. I like the Doctor Who is is a show that has you know liberal bursting of humor. Um, but but I'd say the one that really gets me going, and, and I, I, I think you have a really good insight there, because you're right, I'm, I'm a massive spoiler-phobe, but it's like, yeah, right, because what I'm hoping for is some story that's kind of, you know, take me in one direction and then really pull the rug out from underneath and be like, oh, wow, this is, it. I, you know, I was just watching Fugitive of the Judoon last night, and, you know, this is my second time watching it, and when I sat down to watch that one, I didn't know the title, right? I knew nothing about this episode, and so I'm watching it going, oh, there's Judoon in this, okay, cool, and then it's like, oh, oh, okay, Captain Jack, cool. And then I was like, what the hell is this story? Like, it's, you know, like amazing to watch unfold. Um, so I think, you know, the, the surprises are great. Um, but I would say particularly what resonates with me is, is something where it really gets into the, the real cleverness of what's what's possible. So in many ways, the Stephen Moffat era was was totally right for me because like, you know, it has that kind of Seinfeld sense to it where, you know, like everything is kind of building and building and building and then you get this kind of perfect payoff. I mean, when, when it when it all goes right. Um, right. And, you know, I also don't mind at all the totally bonkers kind of like you know I can't believe this is on television kind of Doctor Who um, and and I always go back to like you know Aliens of London for instance like you know the, the new show comes back and it's like right okay it's cool you know it's got special effects it's got you know heavyweight actors the doctor it's you know it's it's popular and, you know everyone's watching it and then like you know the fourth episode you've got this you know like scam run by like aliens who fart they're disguised as fat people they have a space pig it's <laughs> like a metaphor of the Iraq war like how, how like how is this the thing like was this on television and it i love it and i can't believe anyone else watches this show aside from me i was like if this was just me watching i'd be like great i'm i'm so happy here um, and so i just i just love the doctor who will just go totally out of the box sometimes
0: yeah i i do enjoy watching a story that goes you know this is meant for me maybe not everyone's gonna like this one but this is this sometimes doctor who feels like it's just for me and my little world uh so something like "Fear Her," which you know, not a, not a lot of people uh, love, uh, and I do because it really feels like that's the sort of story that was written specifically for me. And,
1: cool, and speaking cool.
0: of writing stories, you have written several books, you've edited many fan collections, some that are still haven't even come out yet. Uh, not to mention your work uh, on, say, like the the Time Worm collection. So, what is it about Doctor Who that almost demands a literary connection.
2: Yeah, I I think I I, I came of age, you know, kind of just when the classic series was kind of winding up. And so, you know, I was, I think I was just turned 18 when the, the classic series ended for me in Australia. And so I was reading fanzines and stuff and the fanzines kind of went from being like, here's the latest news to, There's no more news, so what are we going to do? We're going to start analyzing. And I was at the perfect age to be like, oh wow, wow! There's all these like themes and stuff. And there's you know, I mean, Ghostlight alone, like there's you know, just <laughs> the volume of stuff written <laughs> right. about Ghostlight at the time. And I'm just fascinated, going, okay, evolution. Let me go learn about that, right? Let me learn about Darwin. Let me learn about all kinds of things. Um, um, you know, I kind of was you know reading about the two doctors and and realized, oh, it's a metaphor for vegetarianism. I became vegetarian as a result. Like it, like I love that kind of like deep analysis of. Of Doctor Who, um, where you can kind of, you know, you can take whatever it is that's on the screen or in the books or whatever, and then kind of just expand outwards and be like, oh, let me kind of learn all this, all this different stuff. It's you know, like so. So for me, I guess that that was really really perfect for me. Um, and I'm totally cool with other people having different takes on it. Like, you know, probably depends hugely on, on what age you were when it really struck a chord with you. Um, and so, you know, I totally get people who were like totally into cosplay, for instance. It's like, yeah, that's super fun. I've, I've done some of that. It's like, you know, like like that's, that's just a different way of, of engaging with it. And and in the end, I really love all the different ways that there are to, to kind of approach Doctor Who. And, and I would say that's, you know, that's what sort of the Outside In series started as was kind of like, let's just hear from everybody and kind of like have all the different takes and, you know, just tell me something interesting and different. Um, because because I love I love that fandom is so, sort of, you know,
1: like,
2: like there's so much variety um, in kind of like different people's, like, takes and attitudes and so on. Um, and I feel like I'm always, you know, whenever I go to a convention, I'm, like, learning so much stuff about, you know, where people are coming from. And it's totally fascinating that sometimes you think, wow, we have very little in common, except for this TV show, but yet we have a lot in common as a result.
0: Right, yeah. Um, I, I know that you have read a lot of Doctor Who books I have, uh, <laughs> is there one out there that that you would have liked to have seen be made into a, a, a televised episode
2: uh yeah I mean I'd have to say Time Worm Revelation um, uh-huh. that that you know again that blew me away I was you know what 19 or so when I read that um and you know I like the idea that the TARDIS materializes inside the Doctor's mind I was like, that is the most incredible thing I have ever imagined. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I could not, you know... Uh, if, if that was made as a TV episode, I mean, the, the problem is, of course, you don't know if they could do it justice, and they probably couldn't. Um, certainly, I listened to the big Finnish adaptations of the New Adventures, and they were all right, but like, they they kind of filed a lot of the edges off. You know what made those those books great. Um, so, so for me, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick that one. But I would say, in general, a lot of the New Adventures are, you know, like just superb books. And having reread them again, like the last couple of years, um, when we're running Bookworm. Um, it it really. You know, it really showed me. Wow, these things. A lot of them stand up incredibly well. Um, I'm I'm currently rereading the Eighth Doctor Adventures, which are a different beast altogether. Um, they have they have a lot more structural problems, although we found some some gems and found some interesting stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just the sheer variety of ideas that are on display instead sort of that era is, is amazing. And of course, it's much easier to do with a book form because you don't have, you know, like budget limitations. You don't have like, you know, the you know BBC standards sort of, you know, leaning over you. You don't have kind of, the, you know, the public outcry if they don't like something. You know, it's you can get away with a lot more. But you know, in my own personal, like, you know, world, yes, that would be that would be fantastic if some of those were made into TV shows. Uh,
0: we've started getting a new trend has started with the. Um, modern who episodes being turned into target book novelizations mm-hmm. uh, is there a story from the last couple of seasons or just new who that hasn't been turned into a novelization that you think you would appreciate uh as a novelization or would work as well if not better
2: ah yeah that's a good question um, uh, may- maybe like Walden, enough in time on the dr falls mm. um that, that, could, that could be a good choice um i mean i absolutely love Stephen moffat's novelization um the day of the doctor because right like, i was like this this is such a great book um you know and, and like he does just little tricks like he never numbers the doctors and yet you know which doctor is being referred to at any given moment and i was like right. you know okay this guy's brain is just it's just something else um <laughs> so I'd, I'd love to see him rework some of his his stuff you know um but yeah i mean i mean there's all all kinds of stuff i suppose um I mean, I guess the, the, the joy of the novelizations, I suppose, was, you know, it, it taught kids to read, really. Um, and it taught us to kind of read because it was in between the, the you know, the, the long fallow period between episodes or seasons or whatever. Um, and, and so that was the only Doctor Who that you had. And, of course, that's just not applicable anymore. Um, so, you know, if, if a kid wants to experience Doctor Who now, they just can. Um, so it's not filling that gap in that sense. Um, so I suppose, you know, the, the novelization as, as a beast has to... Fill some different gap, um, and I think I think like you say, like you know, you, you're trying to go for like what's a special one, or what's something that you know would have some extra added value. Um. You know, because when Terrence Dix passed away, you know, I, I was traveling and I, I got home and I thought, OK, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to just pick one and I'm going to read it. And I read The Power of Crowl uh, because somebody had said, oh, that's the most perfect kind of Terrence Dix novelization like in, in terms of like, you know. And he said, also, it only takes you an hour to read. And, so I, right. to and I read The Power of Crawl, and he was right. It took me one hour. And it's like, this is amazing. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, but you're not learning new stuff about, you know, the small peas, really. And you're not learning about the refinery. You're just reading... An experience that is basically its power of crawl, but it's in your mind, so it's a little bit better than it was on screen. And you're like, "This is great stuff," um, but that, I guess that that experience doesn't really exist anymore, uh, you know, because we we have other things now.
0: Yeah, when when Dick's passed away, that was the one I went looking for. Uh, has uh, had been recommended to me, yeah, and uh, could not find it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, well, I had just I had we had just moved, and so everything yeah. was in oh, boxes, right. yeah. and I think I ended up reading. Uh, I had pulled out a copy of it was probably Horror of Fang Rock. Right, and right. Uh,
2: also also a very good choice.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I think I read that one in honor of, of Dix's passing.
1: Yeah, I'm in the um I'm in a key to time mood right now, so I've grabbed Stones of Blood and Armageddon oh, Factor yeah. so far. I gotta grab the others.
2: Cool. I love the Armageddon Factor. It's one of those ones like, you know, people people are always down on and I'm like, I never saw any problems with it. I just love it. And I remember for the I think the thirtieth anniversary, I thought I'll watch episode one and then end up watching all six. And I was like, Oh, this is great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, speaking of books and writing, um, you have a brand new book out with Graham Burke called Who is the Doctor Two? So tell us about that and how this series came about.
2: Yes, yeah, so so uh, I would say that the Who is the Doctor books um, that I do with Graham—they're they're kind of the like you know descendant of like the Discontinuity Guide and kind of like the the books that we loved when we were younger um, because. I remember always finding like these like you know episode guides and i'd be like oh my god this is like you know it's like dr who but on crack like I'm <laughs> just like you know mainlining episodes of dr who because i'm just reading through it really quickly um and and also i loved episode guides of other things I Remember andy lane's episode guide to babylon 5 was just so gripping um and so i've just been such a fan of those myself for so long and then graham and i um, ended up you know having the opportunity to, to write our own and um it's, you know, we basically just wanted to do what, what we like to do, which is just talk about Doctor Who a lot. And, you know, I would I would say, like, you know, we, we've known each other for a very long time, and we, you know, often go to like Doctor Who Tavern, I just get into like, you know, hilarious arguments about Doctor Who all the time. And there's never any rancor about it. Like, you know, we have very different views, we have very different personalities. There are things he loves, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And like, <laughs> so, and we basically just kind of wrote that down in book form. Um, and, and I think because we are quite different, it, it really gives a it gives a nice kind of sense of like we're not telling you what to think. Like you know we're, we're giving you you know information you might be interested in or might need if you're not as familiar with the episode. Or it might be you know like oh yes right I remember that bit if you are more familiar. Um so there's sort of like you know like basic stuff like you know sort of like where does this come from and what are the, what are the roots of this story and kind of like you know let's let's chart the development of sort of relationship between the Doctor and companions and let's kind of you know like like look at what you know what key stuff we learn and like you know who's, who's the monster each month and so on. But then the the review stuff is where i think it really shines uh, because it's it's kind of really giving us this this kind of you know i get to say my piece he gets to disagree with me we'll go back and forth at it but the reader also i feel comes along with this because if the reader disagrees with both of us no problem right we're not being like here's here's the view you have to accept it it's like oh well there's already two different arguments here and you know i'll either follow one and you know disagree with the other or you know i'll, I'll have my own um, i've had I had you know a, a friend once he came up to me and said yeah i, re- I read your book and he didn't know Graham at all. He just knew me. But he said, he said, I have to say, I agree with Graham almost entirely. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're know, you my friend, but I just disagree with you all the time. And I'm like, that's great. I love that. Because I always say, I don't write to make you agree with me. I write to entertain. And if you're entertained, then I'm so happy. And, you know, if you're kind of like, oh, I'm going to toss the book across the room because I'm so mad at misopinions,' opinions. I'm like, great. That's that's fine. Um, you know, as, as long as as long as you have a smile on your face while doing it, we're, we're all good.
0: Yeah, having just finished the book um, fairly recently, uh, I, I going into it, and I'd read the first one as well, uh, but I, I went into it specifically going just kind of like a hypothesis thinking, like I think I'm going to agree with Robert more than than Graham on these. I just had a I had a feeling yeah. based off of some of the some of the stories because I feel like as we move towards the later seasons, maybe um, Capaldi and the early Whitaker. My opinions of those episodes have been very different. I think from the general, general audiences, a lot of other members of fandom I talked to, mm-hmm. and uh, my hypothesis was incorrect. Not because I agreed yeah. with Graham more, but but yeah. I felt like both of you. I couldn't predict which one of you was going to like or dislike a story and for the reasons being unless of course we had already discussed it uh, yeah you know having one of these conversations and i really appreciated that because it didn't feel like i was watching a political debate where i knew the issues already i felt like each of you came to it with your own individual sense and likes and dislikes and the conversations that you have between the two of you really bind that that uh those opinions together, and I think, into a kind of a cohesive story, especially since you carry on those conversations between reviewers, which I, I've, I found was a, a very nice touch.
1: Yes,
2: right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's fascinating, actually, because, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's hard to get the outside of view of, like, you know, is it going to be predictable? And I, mean, I think there's some things where, you know, like, like you know, you can maybe guess sort of, you know, where Graham might like and where I might like it. But, but I agree, it's sometimes you really don't know. Um, and and there's a couple of times where we sort of mix things up a bit and, you know, like, like normally, you know, like... Like um, you know, Graham is a huge fan of like you know Toby Whithouse's stories, and I'm I'm not as big a fan. And and we, we had some just like I don't know why we even did it, um, but um but under the lake and um and before the flood, somehow I ended up doing that one. Which I loved, and I was like, "Oh, this is great stuff!" Like, I kind sort of liked it already, but I really loved it again. And then Graham was like, "Why am I doing this one?" <laughs> so, you know, we're just like, "Yeah, you know what? Actually, it's not not a bad idea." And a few times we we, we fought deeply over which ones we wanted to do. He was going to do um, the girl who died, and then I was I was rewatching it at one point, and I was like, "Oh, I have to do this one! I absolutely have to!" And I was like, "Okay, I will I will trade you anything for this one." <laughs> and and I really thought that he was he was actually going to love it more than he ended up loving it. And I'm actually really glad we did because I was like, this is stupendous. This, this may be, you know, one of the best stories that we've ever seen. And, and it's, it's sort of the Uber doctor who story in so many ways. Um, and, and then, you know, it's funny cause Graham was sort of like, you know, complaining more about like the, the fan service in it. And I'm like, sure. But you know, I'm so glad that I, I took that story then, um, because I just, I just adored it.
1: Uh, which of Graham's responses surprised you the most?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I think something like Rosa, for instance, um, because if Graham and I had, had talked briefly about, about um, you know, series 11 and when Jody Whittaker turned up and I, I was, I was traveling a lot. I was on sabbatical. I normally travel quite a bit anyway. Um, and then I was on sabbatical during like most of this. So I was, I was all over the map and I was living in different countries and so on. And we hadn't actually chatted much. And then, and then, you know, I think I think I watched the first five episodes of, of the Jodie Whitaker season in five different countries. And, and then, um, you know, Gray was like, oh, so he's very cautiously, so what did you think? And I think he was expecting me to hate it um, because I'd never been a big fan of Chris Chibnall. Um, and, I you know, I was really down on Chibnall's writing, but I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, no, I'm really enjoying this, actually. And he's like, oh, good, good. And so I was like, you know, we actually were both quite into it. And we are both like, and, and then rewatching it all for um, for the, the book, um, what I found is like series 11 really went up in my estimation. I was like, oh, this is this is really great stuff actually. Like it has its problems for sure, but what era doesn't, um, but I was just really loving this. Um, whereas Grain was, he was much more down on it. And it's funny cause he watched Women Who Fell to Earth and he was like, oh, this is great stuff. And then he kind of was like, yeah, but you know, he was sort of pointing out the problems and I'm like, that's that's fine. Um, and he had something like *Rose*, I thought, "Oh, this will be—you know, this will be just a celebration of like, you know, a magnificent episode." And then he was sort of like, "Yeah, it's kind of a seven out of ten episode, but with some eleven out of ten moments." And I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> sure, <laughs> I think it's fantastic, but you know, <laughs> that's fine."
0: That's one of the things I, th- I found interesting too, because when I first started my like pilgrimage and doing a rewatch of the classic series, yeah. I got my hands on um, a, a kind of a, a collection—a review collection. That, that was so it was a really huge mistake on my part that was definitely rating every episodes and so some of the episodes that I really liked I would look and see that they had rated it very low and I was like what is wrong with me that I'm not what am I not getting and I appreciate that you don't you are not ranking these episodes you know you have to read and understand and hear your own opinions to understand what you what you liked and disliked about it, as opposed to just simply looking at a number, um, which yes. as fans, we have a tendency to rank things and we have a tendency to rate things. Uh, and that's just a shorthand for it works for a lot of us. I mean, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think the the collection doesn't, certainly doesn't need that. Um, yeah, while think, you think, were reviewing... Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead, please. Oh, yeah, yeah. so
2: so I, th- I think the problem with, with the ranking with the number is you know, at the end of the day, the people reading it are fundamentally only reading the number, right? It's right. like everything everything in the review is just in service to that number. Um and I think that you know the, the analysis actually is much more nuanced than that. It's mm-hmm. you know if it's seven out of ten, that might be because it's just wholly middle of the road, or it might be because it's this absolutely brilliant thing in it and then there's a bunch of terrible stuff and it kind of cancels out. Like uh, you know it's it's like if you read those online lists, it's like you know, five things you should be doing in coronavirus. What are you doing? You're looking for the five headings. You're not really reading the rest of the article because because right. it's like that's what you're leading into. So so I've actually been very much against like putting numbers on reviews because I, I you know I I find that they're not not very helpful actually. Even though they, you know they kind of give you that dopamine hit of like okay well you know is it good or not right because that's what you kind of want from the end of it. Um, but you know something like Kill the Moon. Right. Which I, I think is, you know, a totally fascinating story has, you know, huge things to say. You know, it's bold and it comes out of the gate and so on. And it's so messy in terms of, <laughs> kind of like, you know, I mean, the, you know, the, the abortion metaphor. I'm like, wow. OK, that is a bold thing to do in Doctor Who. Right. Let's let's talk about that. On the other hand, the terrible science, you're like, why? Why would you do that? Like, like you're, you know, you're you're taking an enormous risk to try and, like, you know, talk about something very, very difficult, and then you're just like shooting yourself in the foot doing it. <laughs> it's like, okay, you you know, you, you're going to lose some people of this metaphor, and now you're going to lose a whole bunch of others for no reason. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. so so you know, how do you settle? Is that a seven out of ten episode? Like, this is, <laughs> you know, very very hard to say. Uh, yeah. I I will say I'm immensely grateful they made that episode um, because I think I think we are richer for having it. Um, no matter where you land on on your opinions of that metaphor
0: sure well speaking of just you know watching were there any stories that your opinion you thought you had you're going to have one opinion on that you changed your opinion after rewatching it for the book to uh
2: yeah yeah that it does happen quite a bit um you know something like time heist which you know you just think is this you know sort of throwaway episode um watching the opening of time heist and, and opening i mean probably the opening like 20 minutes you're like this is the greatest episode ever um <laughs> and you can kind of be like yeah i can tell when stephen moffat stops writing his part <laughs> um, right but it's 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 really good it's a really great episode um and so you know stuff like that sort of comes out of you know like like oh yeah you know when you watch it first time you, you're having a very different view i think to to kind of like some of the depth there um and then you know i, I mean some of the latest stuff too some of the you know i say series nine or whatever you know like it it hadn't been so recent and i hadn't really rewatched a lot of it um so then you're 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 seeing things that you know just like oh right i don't really you know i'm not that familiar with face the raven let me you know let me watch it again and see and you're like oh actually this is this is very good stuff um and and then something like i don't know like return of dr mysterio which you know i watched in the movie theater and and i watched with with my girlfriend at the time who was like a big comics person and she really liked it and i'm like great good i'm glad you liked it i was like eh, it's okay I watched it this time i'm like what is this terrible piece like oh my god <laughs> this is this is awful and at one point i think graham wanted me to do that one he's, he's like oh i'm running late and yeah can you can you do that one i'm like nope i'm not doing that one and he's like okay fine fine yes because i mean he's, he's the comics person and i'm not so <laughs> yeah
0: i remember watching that one and actually um bemoaning the fact that moffat isn't writing uh like a superhero television show, like it's like a Smallville or something like that, because I, I feel like as a superhero meat cute, it's actually really charming. But it it doesn't feel like it really has much place in Doctor Who, because I think, as you mentioned in, in the, the review, because uh, the ghost is has his powers at the end of yeah. the story, <laughs> then you've, you've, you you've basically like, why is he not in every single episode and mentioned in every modern day episode? Like he should be essentially, it should be the ghost show after that. Yes. Uh, like if he had saved the day and lost his powers, then you fair know yeah. that would have been a much different story.
2: The Doctor Who narrative cannot support itself after this episode. And the only thing that saves Doctor Who is the fact it's so boring that nobody
1: remembers it. <laughs> You're like, okay, right, fair enough. <laughs> Well, for the more recent stories, do you and Graham work on reviews when the stories air, or do you wait till you have a better grasp of that story series as a whole?
2: Uh, we we always wait till we have a better grasp. Um, uh, sometimes the deadline is is you know <laughs> coming down on us, um, but still, I, I think there's there's no way to do it on the on the first viewing. Like like I would say, you just you just can't have a have a good perspective. Um, and and in this case, uh, I think you know resolution had come out only a few months before, but. But it was still enough time that that you know, um, and and I think also being being a one-off episode, it wasn't too bad, um, and yeah. So so we all we always try and make sure we you know. Like, like you know we will read about it and talk about it online and you know like mull over what your opinions are and things like that because i think it's really good to kind of have all that stuff informing it i mean one of the things i, I really like about the book um it, which is that we, we kind of write on two levels so if we write simultaneously for the newbie who's you know never read a reference book before and doesn't really know much about behind the scenes doctor who so they're learning it for the first time through our book which we definitely have a lot of those readers uh, but we also write it for the hardcore fan who knows all the stuff we're talking about like we're probably not going to surprise him with any facts but you know we want to make the Entertaining at the same time, and a lot of feedback has said, you know, both groups have, have found this something they appreciate because, you know, the, the fans who've read every book they often go, yeah, okay, but this is totally boring and I've seen all this before. Like they're saying, wow, I really enjoyed your your take on on this. Um, and the newbies sometimes they're like, yeah, we read something and we don't know what you're talking about. You know, that that's really tough. But in in you know in the case of like the Who's the Doctor books, we you know, like like we feel like it's a great way to get into the show and and people will, you know watch the episodes along with the book and stuff, which is really fun.
1: Uh, before we move on, where can listeners find their own copies of Who is a Doctor Too?
2: Right. Well, I, I would normally say this is found in all good bookstores, so just go out into the bookstores. <laughs> but right now, <laughs> that's perhaps not so doable. Um, so so the ebook is is available. Um, you can go to ecwpress.com um, or just look on Amazon or eBay or whatever um, – uh, I mean, one nice thing they have, which is quite applicable right now, is that if you buy the physical book, then you can buy the ebook for free. Sorry, don't buy it. You, you get the ebook for free. You just just message them. Um, so you know, I, I know a lot of fans like to have a physical book on the shelves. It looks nice, but then you want to read it on your device. Um, so I, I I really like that. I'm more a physical book kind of person when I have the choice. Um, but sh- you know, given our current circumstances, <laughs> the ebook is is definitely available. Uh, so, so you can just just Google that one. I mean, it's 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 because it's done by a sort of you know, it's not done by a small fan press. It's it's done by a kind of actual publisher. So they you know have a marketing department and they can get the book out in the bookstores and you know like have it have a you know a reach across you know Amazon and so on. Um, so so it's it's pretty easy to find.
1: And tonight, as I look into the sky, and it looks back
0: on me. I want to know, which am I? I need to know. Is this
1: the beginning of the journey? Or the end? Uh, well, Robert, the thing that we like to do here at the show is we, we love to talk about Doctor Who, and, but we know that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of your fandom. So we asked our guests to also bring along a show that they like to watch and talk about it with us. So why don't you tell us what show you wanted to talk about and why?
2: Yeah, so my, my second favorite show is Millennium. And this is – it was kind of uh, not quite a spin off of The X-Files, but it was made by the same people. And The X-Files was at the height of its powers, and they basically said to Chris Carter, you can do anything you want, and he said, great, I will. And so he made this show, and and at the time, it was the most watched pilot in history. I think it had like 17 million people watch this this pilot. Um, And then it was not nearly as well watched in the second episode. Uh, and the problem is, uh, it was very dark. Um, and and one of the reasons I love this is because, you know, I remember being Doctor Who, you know, sorry, watching Doctor Who and, you know, being totally terrified of Doctor Who and you're kind of watching it with, you know, one hand over your face and stuff like that. And it's, it's really scary when you're five years old, right? Watching Millennium as, as, you know, I think I was 26 or something, right? I was just as scared. Like, as an adult, I'm like, oh, my God, this is absolutely terrifying. Um, and And it was, the idea was it was, just you know pre-millennium so you know the 96 to 99 the show ran uh, and it dealt with the the coming millennium and the apocalyptic fears that, that kind of were pervasive in the, in the late 90s. Um, so everything from kind of Y2K to kind of, you know, the rise of serial killers to, you know, like like what is what is going to happen? Is, is life as we know it going to end? Um, and, you know, well, the answer, of course, turned out to be, yes, it is. <laughs> it totally did. It's really funny because, you know, the, the comfortable, you know, like pleasant life that we had in the 90s completely ended. It just ended on 9-11 rather than on January 1st, 2000. Um, so it's very fascinating watching Millennium now um, and kind of Uh, It's also, it's a very kind of, it's a difficult show in some ways, um, because you get the sense of like, it doesn't feel that cohesive. Um, There are three seasons. And they feel like three very different seasons. Like, so they feel like three very different television shows, right? So the first season is basically serial killer of the week, and so you know it's here's a different serial killer. You know, this one's killing priests. This one's blowing people up, right? <laughs> this this one is you know murdering relatives at funerals. Like, you know, it's it's kind of like yeah, okay, sure. Um, but it gets a little samey after a while, and and then they you know they throw in some cool arcs and stuff. So so there is you know there are moments of absolute brilliance but there's a lot of sameness and then season two comes along and chris carter was was busy with um making the x-files movie and also running the x-files itself and so he's basically said to glenn morgan and james wong he's like you guys take over this and they said we got this and oh my god the second season of millennium is perhaps the greatest season of television ever made <laughs> like it is just <laughs> totally incredible and and it, i mean you know the the first episode starts as it's part two of a two-parter and you're like this is like a totally different show like it's yes it's technically following up on you know the the cliffhanger but like you know it's it's just this completely new thing um and they just take it into directions that that you just can't even imagine this even was showed on, on television um so so it is it is just this glorious show that's basically kind of all about apocalypses and kind of apocalypse is plural. Like, it's kind of, you know, the coming apocalypse. I mean, I mean the wheeze of the show is the central character is a kind of, you know, 50-something-year-old, like, former FBI profiler, and he has visions. And so he can... He, originally, it was like he can see what the killer sees. Um, although they kind of changed that as, as time goes on. He just sort of has these flashes. So it's really neat, because you kind of have this kind of like you know, predestination kind of ideas of what's going to happen in, in the episode, but they're, they're very intense, very fast um, flashes that happen, which many, many shows since have emulated. And so, um, this has gone on to be standard in TV. A lot of people working in the industry say, yeah, Millennium was a really key show for them in terms of like designing, like you know, like later television techniques and so on. Uh, I mean, the, the filming is just glorious, it looks like a movie every week. Um, uh, they sort of saturate the colors so that, like, you know, when, when he's out in the field and investigating like the worst crimes ever, it's, it's very sort of you know, like, like gray and Kind of like you know the color scheme is very muted, and then he comes home. He has his bright yellow house, and so that's that's kind of you know overlit and stuff. And he sort of you know has the perfect family, and so on. And of course, then they destroy all of that throughout the, the course of the show. <laughs> uh.
0: Were, was this appointment television for you? Were you making a, a point of watching it every week?
2: Yes. Yeah, so so this was actually it was uh, the very first show that I watched from the beginning all the way through. Um, because I'd, I'd, I'd moved to Canada the, the year before and in Australia we just got shows whenever they kind of turned up um, And so, you know, and you get them sometimes a year and a half later I remember I because I, I jumped from Australia to Canada and you know in one week of time I I fast-forwarded a year and a half of all the TV shows. So I was like wait What's happening in Deep Space Nine? What's happening in Babylon 5? Like this is, you know, quite the, quite their culture shock here Um and whereas Millennium, which came along the next year, um, I was like, okay, let me watch this new show. And, and I remember I'd been taping, sorry, I hadn't been taping The X Files because I was like, I'll oh, watch The X Files, but it's you know it's all right. I only tape it if I'm you know like missing an episode or something. And Millennium, I was like, I got to start taping this show. And and so you know right from the beginning, I was like, I was like, this this is a great thing. And I've rewatched Millennium so many times, including quite recently because
0: um, I'm writing a book about it. Brent, uh, did you watch the show when it was on?
1: Oh yeah, um, first started watching right on initial broadcast because i was a huge x-files fan and they promoted the crap out of this so it, since it was made by the same people i was on board plus i'm a lance hendrickson fan and um i i remember also that it came out in the fall of 96 and the internet was a fairly new thing so uh every week to promote the show um i think it was on their website or something they would have a small video clip and back then you know, like I said, internet was new, so a small video clip was a big deal, <laughs> and, and, and they would release, every week they would release like a short little four or five second long clip, which was just Frank's vision for that week, so you can imagine they were pretty weird. Oh, that, that's amazing, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but anyway, I love the show, um, I, I get what you're saying about the samey samey about the first season, and, and you are totally right, all three seasons are totally different from each other um and and i do love i do love all three um i kind of lean towards the first season a little more uh just because it dealt with some really insane and unique like serial killers and frank saw a lot of horrible things but he always had his family and his yellow house to go back to that sort of kept the balance and then later they just destroyed all of that like you said <laughs> you <Yeah>. know his, <laughs> his family is missing most of season two and the the separation and the house has been sold and it all went a bit too dark. But having said that, I think I would agree with you that, um, season two is also like really excellent. Like the Christmas episode and the Halloween episodes, those are just top notch. I loved those.
0: Yeah. It came out around the time. And I was an X-Files fan and like, I kind of came to it late, um, compared to everybody else, but they really did advertise millennium a lot. And, uh, at the time, I was hanging out with a group that that got together for social television watching, which is not a thing that was really popular in my household. And you know, this was a big deal. Everyone was going to – this new show was coming out. We all gathered together, and we watched it. And you know what? I don't like it when people kill each other. Like just human-on-human human, <laughs> human violence, like serial killer stuff like that. Slasher films ha- hold no interest to me. Give me a monster of the week every single time. It wasn't weird enough for me. The conspiracy theory stuff I, I really dug, so I like I watched like the first two or three episodes, and then it just it completely lost me, and I never gave season two a chance. Um, but clearly, that seems to have been uh, a mistake on my part.
2: It's, it's it's quite amazing what what they pulled out of the fire in terms of season two. Like it is it just, is just like I don't know. I mean, the Darren Morgan episodes are, are just you know they're they're ultra Darren blogger episodes like they, they do a sequel to um Jose Chung's outer Space which is the X-Files episode with with Jose Chung and I would say the sequel is is a billion times better even than <laughs> that amazing episode <laughs> and and it, it I mean they take on Scientology and then they actually kind of had to like water it down a bit because the Scientologists were like you know threatening to sue them and um like oh they just just get into like incredible stuff I mean I think you know like the the, the Halloween episode has like no dialogue it's, you know it's, it's just it's just very very clever stuff
0: yeah, Darren Morgan is, is a selling point for me. And I, I didn't realize that he was essentially the showrunner for season two. And when I when I look at the X-Files episodes that I love the most, I think about 80% of them are Darren Morgan stories or yeah. have Darren Morgan starring as a fluke man in them. You know, that kind of a thing. So. Yes,
2: yes, that's right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's Glenn Morgan who was one of the showrunners, but but he's Darren Morgan's brother. So, so right. Darren Morgan a huge influence over the, the second season. And you can kind of also see that they've they've taken some of the ideas... Like you know, we're kind of seeding into the X Files already, and we're being like, "Wow, we can we can totally up the weirdness here," and it and it works because they they've basically got the Darren Morgan roadmap, and um, and that's awesome.
0: It actually, I was just thinking about it, and, and maybe you might disagree with this, but it almost feels like uh, if X Files is Doctor Who, then Millennium is sort of a torchwood um, yeah. where it it feels like it upped the violence and it upped the darkness of it quite a bit.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, actually. And I would say, you know, in that sense, like season two of Millennium is like Miracle Day. Uh, sorry, is is um, Children of Earth. Sorry. Um, right. it's, it's, like, it's like, wow, where did that come from out of this, this you know, kind of weird show? Uh, you know, this, this doesn't feel like the rest of the show. Um, and then and then, yeah, season three feels like Miracle Day. It's <laughs> so, like, wait, what? What is going on?
0: Like, <laughs> does that make Lone Gunman the Sarah Jane adventures? <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually watch Lone Gunman, but I felt like it was it. It didn't didn't. Last very long, did it? It was it was sort of no, like was, the, there and a little too simple or weird yeah. so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so um you've already hinted at a couple of your choices. But whenever we have a guest on, we ask him to choose a couple of episodes to watch. So for me, for instance, i I have only watched the first two episodes, and that was, you know, several decades ago. And then the episodes that you have recommended. Uh, so you chose four episodes, all of which are from season two to talk about. Uh, and so you included, Luminary, Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, and then the season two finale, uh, which is in two parts, which is the Fourth Horseman and the Time is Now. So the question is, why these four episodes in particular?
2: Right. So I, I, I think I even told you to watch Luminary first, didn't I?
0: You did, and I did. <laughs>
2: yes, even though it comes later. Uh, Luminary is, is is such a is such a just like, elegiac kind of, like, an episode. It, it's just so gentle and so lovely. Um, and I think you kind of really see, like, the, the, the goodness at the, at the heart of Frank Black. Um, like, like in many ways, you know, with the X-Files, like, Boulder, like, you know, he's this kind of pretty out-there kind of character, um, you know, and, and he's, he's all conspiracy theories and so on. Whereas, whereas Frank Black is, he's, he's like, the, the sheriff in, in the Western, right? He is, he is the embodiment of goodness. Um, and they do try and kind of take that down a bit um, in the second season. But I feel like Luminary is the one where he's, you know, he's just, he's, he's on this mission to just go find this this kid who's kind of been lost in Alaska and he just will not give up. And, and that that is amazing like can you really see the kind of harrowing lengths to which he goes um and he goes and he just treks through and, and even when everyone else has kind of abandoned him um, and then he finally you know like finds his kid has broken his leg and his head like you know flies eating away at his face and stuff like that it's, it's not pleasant and he carries the kid back kind of through through the jungle um, and you know he's risking hypothermia and just sitting there as he puts the, the kid onto the plane and like just sits there watching the plane take off you're just like this is this is amazing and at the same time you've got these hints of like you know like like he's got this this sort of psychic gift well they call it the gift and obviously it's a curse right it is the worst things ever happened to him is this gift that he can see things um but his daughter has it too um and and they're getting you're just getting hints that the daughter has something happening and the, and the daughter is like you know with her mother and they're at this point the like parents are separated um but there's there's still a connection there um and they look at this this picture and it's this kind of you know renaissance kind of era like you know well there's two pictures and one one is like kind of death and destruction and the other is kind of this this sort of you know saint um, and the daughter is like, that's daddy. And, and the mother thinks she's talking about the, the, the death and destruction one. She's like, look, your father has to do really tough things. She's like, not that one, this one. And you're like, <laughs> that is exactly who this guy is. Um, I, I mean, somebody wants to describe Millennium as kind of being, you know, it's about a middle aged man having a midlife crisis. Um, and you're like, wow, that's that's not the kind of thing you usually see on television. Um, you know, it's like, you know, you don't usually see like, you know, much older characters and kind of, you know, like have kind of the wife and the kids and kind of just living their kind of, you know, in some ways ordinary life, even though obviously does, ex- you know, different, non-ordinary things in, in his in his day job um, um and, and at the same time too actually he's, he's at this point had a, he's kind of had a split from the millennium group um who start off as kind of like they're this kind of benevolent kind of group who you know kind of protect him but they at this point in season two we, we've delved a lot into the origins of the millennium group um and realized that they're kind of cultish like there's there's a lot going on here um, and yet peter watts who was you know kind of just his kind of colleague in season one they're they're at a much more complicated relationship in season two Um, and in fact Peter Watts will go on to be the villain in season three in many ways Um, but Peter Watts like you know he heads off for this trip, and then you know, and Frank's wife comes to see him and gives him this big speech about like you know, like you know, like you know, you just don't care about him, whatever. She said, like, "By the way, where are you going on your trip?" And he just looks at her and he's like, "Oh, you're going to get Frank, right? Okay, this is amazing, and it's it's, it's, it's so beautiful, actually." And then, of course, the music is is astonishing. Like the the, the the you know what what they do with like a lot of the, the music in the shows is 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 pretty amazing.
0: That's Mark Snow, right? Didn't he do it's, the yes. X Files stuff? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yes, exactly.
0: I just remembered another reason I started watching the program to begin with is that the main character, well, I knew that Lance Hendrickson was going to be in it. And, like, mm-hmm. I remember at the time thinking, what a get to get a big Hollywood oh, yeah. star, you mm-hmm. know, because he, he was such a staple of the ho- kind of low budget horror movie
2: yeah.
0: uh, and science fiction, which is all I watched. Mm-hmm. So, to me, <laughs> this was like getting, I don't know, like George Clooney to do a television show, yes. you know, like this is like this is mm-hmm. recognizable. And,. His character's name was Frank Black, which was the name of the lead singer uh, of my favorite band, which was the Pixies. Mm-hmm. So he was Black Francis, and then when he left the ah. Pixies, he he toured on his own as uh, Frank Black. And I was like, ah, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> it's a sign. I'm totally gonna watch it. <laughs> and, and, but yeah. had you, you know, I had only watched those two or three episodes from the season one, and I remember being this dark and kind of foreboding film. And then this was such a Luminary is such a meditative story about. Kind of the inward journey and the uh, casting off of material possessions and wealth to look inside <laughs> and becoming one with something greater than yourself, and it, it, it's such a ple- like. I kept on waiting for like this other shoe to drop, where it turns out like all the Alaskan uh, police force they murdered the boy and were hiding his right. body and it was a conspiracy, <laughs> and it's it's not. It's you know like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're very
2: accurate there when you say it's it's an inward journey because I think that one one of the things I actually really love about the show, and I I, I think I really appreciated Lance Henriksen, who gives this you know absolutely virtuoso performance through the whole show, is is he's such an introvert, right? He
0: mm-hmm.
2: he speaks when he has to, and he doesn't speak the rest of the time, and and it's amazing, and he just he just has this presence. Um, and and you know I I saw a documentary, and they said like you know in you know the opening episode, the pilot, whatever, and he was trying to do this thing, and and then they they Chris Carter said, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. He said, stop using your hands. And he like, what do you mean, stop using my hands? I got, he's like, no, no, the kind of people who talk with their hands are like used car salesmen who are trying to sell you something. This guy's not trying to sell you something. And Lance Hendrick said, oh, I got it, right? And it's like, yeah, he's just there. He's just doing his thing. He doesn't need you to believe him, but, you know, he's usually right anyway.
0: <laughs> That's really cool. Well, as a fan of... Well, uh, what did you think of this one,
1: Brent? I love this one. It was really... Uh... I don't want to say chill, but it was it was uh, a <laughs> was a really good one. Brian James was in there, who always plays a bad guy, but this he's just a jerk sheriff. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, and and Frank gets pretty much abandoned by Peter and and the group. They pretty much drop him like a twenty cent pair of socks, and so Frank's on his own. And that scene where he's dragging the kid up the hill, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking to myself, oh God, what if he? what if he accidentally drops and as soon as i thought that he hits that rock and that kid goes rolling into the water i'm like oh my god it was so intense i was like oh my god i felt every bit of that and he runs down there and tries to catch him and um that was a great scene
0: it's really that's that scene in particular is really well directed because it's foreshadowed by the camera angle the camera angle suddenly drops low and you're 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 seeing this struggle of him pulling from above. And so we can see the distance he's traveled. And then suddenly we have this below shot. So you can see that the terrain has changed, that he's not in this low valley. He's up high and like there's just all this distance. And you can see it, it just like the 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 kind of car, the vehicle that he's made to pull the guy is dangling off the and then it falls. I mean, it's like, it's really intense. And you know the, you're dealing with this kid who's unconscious and who suddenly hits this freezing cold water and and it looks like genuine panic on his face. They they both did a really good job with that. So Jose Chung from Outer Space, possibly my favorite episode of the X Files. Uh, you know, you tell me Darren Morgan's writing a sequel to it. Um, I'm loving that. Uh, I, I I know we we have to talk about the finale, but like, oh, any was- just quick thoughts on on this. Um, Jose Chung's doom defense Doomsday defense
2: yeah, Jose Chung's defense is is such a literate, rich work. Um, uh, there, there is so much in there. I mean, they kind of simultaneously, like you know, take on Scientology. They just send up the darkness of the X Files hilariously. Like, like they they give Frank this kind of role where he's just, like you know, kind of like you know, wearing a bright yellow jacket, and he's like, I'm gonna punch him in the balls, and he's just that's his catchphrase. <laughs> you're like, what 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 is this? <laughs> and you're like, how is this a comedy episode of <laughs> Millennium, which doesn't do comedy? Like, like it's you know, it, it's incredible. Um, and and you know they just kind of I mean the the whole show is is this giant sort of thing about the apocalypse the end of the world is coming and so on and then at the end you know Jose Chung is like yeah it's just another thousand years of the same old crap and you're kind of like <laughs> yep yeah, fair enough you know um, yeah no it's just I mean it's 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 a very it's a very complicated work um, and and they're kind of. You know, you know, you because what you see is that Jose Chung works as an X Files character and you put him in a millennium episode and he doesn't work. Right. And so, you know, when he's dealing with conspiracy and stuff like that, it's fine. And then there's just this mad axe murderer who just wanders in and just puts an axe in his head and you're like, Oh, all right. Um I I, I don't know how I feel about that. That's very complicated. <laughs> but it, it narratively he's not he's not capable of coping with a millennium episode. <laughs> so.
1: Um, I think I'm in the minority here. I've, Darren Morgan stories usually aren't for me, but I know a lot of people love them. I just don't normally like full-on comedy and drama shows. But however, I did like this one. Um, first off, Charles Nelson Reilly, was, is, he's always great. He made me laugh as a kid on the Hollywood Squares.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and I liked that it was self-aware that it was a comedy and a dark show because did you notice how many times somebody would say to the other, don't be so dark? don't be so dark yes. and that was one of the names <laughs> of the books i think so that was really yeah. funny um uh one shot of uh somebody was i can't remember if it was jose or if it was frank had a shot of jack daniels and then threw a um alka-seltzer in there <laughs> yeah <laughs> things like that made me laugh um and there was some really cool uh picture cameos from david duchovny and i think it might have been the rest of the x-files cast on the walls in the background i thought i saw jillian anderson but um That was funny. And and, but the whole time I'm thinking that they're acting out a book of Chong's because of the way they speak. And the scene at the end where Frank is reading the book, I'm still not sure if all of that really happened or not. What do you think?
2: Oh, oh, I like I like I like the take, actually. Yeah. Yeah. that's And and I think it, it totally opens itself up to that possibility as well. Um, actually, one of the things I love the most is at one point he's, he's, you know, trying the meditation tape and they say like, okay, you know, they're, they're trying to like, you know, be like, let, let's not be dark. So let, think of something bad and, and then we'll heal you from it. So they think of, think of something dark. And then you just see nonstop visions of just like the worst things that you see in Millennium every single week. And it's yeah. totally hilarious. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, Frank has a lot of darkness in him. Oh my God, this is, <laughs> this is really intense. And <laughs>
1: Well, then that brings us to the two-part finale. I guess we could talk about both of them at the same time because they're really connected. Uh, The Fourth Horseman and The Time is Now. Why did you pick these two? Uh,
2: Well, I picked these two because, you know, unlike most people, I'm interested in diseases and how they spread in the world (laughs) because we picked this months ago. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, like – this, yeah, I, I mean, I, you guys said to me pick three episodes and I picked four because I said, well, the last two are two partners. So so yes, I really do think of them as kind of one story. Um, this is kind of where a lot of stuff really comes together. Um, I mean, the Millennium has been prefiguring the apocalypse for for two years now. And suddenly, it's here suddenly, this is the apocalypse. And the apocalypse, you know, like they kind of do it as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But one of them, you know, is, is the plague. And here comes the plague. Um, and you know, like, like the, the whole, I mean, everything about this, these two episodes is just gripping um, the, the fact that, you know, that the Frank and Peter have been infected for, right from the beginning, and then the Millennium group has a vaccine. So they vaccinated against it. And yeah, oh, great. Okay, well, our lead characters are safe because they've been vaccinated. And yet kind of Frank is like, I didn't ask for this. And I didn't even necessarily want it. Um, and yet, what about their families? And you sort of realize, you know, and when Peter says, like, It was always about control. You realize just how horrific the Millennium Group is, and and I I think what I love is this is kind of the sort of Breaking Bad before its time, like you know. I mean the thing about Breaking Bad they said was, you know, characters never change, like on TV. That's you know, characters are very static. Um, but with Millennium, this is this is not true. And and I think in particular like the Millennium group, they start off as like, you know, the the heroes of the show and and, you know, you're really rooting for them. And by this point, now they're kind of releasing a play because they want to control the apocalypse. And you're like, hang on, hang on, when when did they become the bad guys? Like this was a very slow burn along along the way. And and as as Frank's wife says, you know, he's in a cult (laughs) and he doesn't realize it and the funny thing was I didn't realize it either I'm watching this going yeah okay well they just got these rituals and they do these things and like you know and when when his partner Lara like like you know she becomes a full member and they're like doing these like you know cutting your your, your hand with a knife and stuff like that and you're like wait a minute wait this is a cult oh my god I was like I would be totally sucked into this cult I would totally join them <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> now I'm in there and you know and, and I was like wow I see how people get into cults <laughs> like, never really thought about this before um, and also the idea that the you know there is an actual worldwide pandemic that's released, and actually happens like this, this is this is amazing. Um, And then you know, it, it kills multiple people including frank's wife um yeah. and you know there is there is one vaccine and they have to choose Do they give it to his wife or his daughter and and the choice is very clear and he pays the price for this um and what's what's fascinating is the way they end this they end it with static and, and they put up it just, frank's vision just becomes static and he's just having these flashes of just nothing 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 and and you know his hair turns gray suddenly overnight and he's just trapped in his cabin it's the end of the world it's him and his daughter and all he is seeing is static there is nothing the fact they showed something like I think it's like 30 full seconds of static on television in prime time. Yeah. Um, and they did it because apparently they, they wanted to run an ad for the show during the Super Bowl, and the Super Bowl said no. And so they said, well, fine, screw you. We're putting up static on TV for exactly <laughs> as long as the ad would have been. They timed it to the second. <laughs> and, so it's, you know, and, oh, in the middle of this, there's a video clip of, you know, <laughs> Patti Smith's song that runs for nine minutes. And you're like, wait, what? And and this is, you know, basically it's it's the slow descent of, of his partner Lara, who, who is, you know, she's always had a pretty thin grip on reality. <laughs> uh, you know, she herself has visions, a so different kind of visions to Frank. And, you know, ever since we've seen her, she's been this kind of like hanging by a thread kind of a person. And then she goes full into the the just mental breakdown. And it is harrowing and brutal. And it's all set to this Patti Smith song, and it's done as a video clip. And and you know they say most video clips cost much more to film than an episode of television, um, and so they had to do it on TV budget. And for what it is, it's it's just amazing. And I remember watching this on first viewing, and you're watching that's the entire like screen between two ads is like you know you come back from the ad break and they started to this this music, and you watch nine minutes of this thing, and then they go to the next ad break, and you're like, what did I just watch?
1: <laughs> that, is, that is incredible. I didn't realize that, that it went from uh, one break to the next. I I did have in my notes, I said, Laura goes crazy in a 10-minute music video. Yes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I hadn't remembered that part when when I watched this before. Um, But yeah, Uh, I I think
2: I think what's also lost a bit now is that TV just didn't do that kind of thing back then. Like like TV was very staid and kind of like you know you knew what you were getting pretty much. Like you know it was basically like you know it's it's a play on television kind of thing. And and to to mix up that kind of narrative stuff, like it'd be done here and there. But that this was really kind of a, a line in the sand of like wow, you know this prime time kind of TV show that's watched by a lot of people still can do this kind of thing, and you're like that that is amazing.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that happened in here too. Uh, Frank's dad passes away, which was um, Darren McGavin from yes. uh, Colcheck Night Yep. <laughs> like I said earlier, the Christmas episode, Midnight of the Century, where they reunite—that's that was the best one this year for me. Um, yeah,
2: that's a that's a beautiful episode, and and the the way they reunite is
1: all done in this one long, long, long talking scene
2: um, that starts off. They're very antagonistic, and it ends with this like beautiful hug. And you're like, that's that's really well written. It's just really, you just see the tone just change and then they be, they become connected again, um, which is lovely.
1: Yeah, and you see Jordan saying, who are these people? And there's a bunch of people walking and you think they're <laughs> so, angels and you see his dad and I'm like, oh, did his dad yeah. just die?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I, I think it's it's a premonition of all the people who are going to die in right. the coming
1: year. And so, yes, the dad, the dad is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do we think about the trust? We haven't talked about them yet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what it's doing is it's kind of setting up this perfect out for Frank that, you know, he, he basically joins, well, he has the opportunity to join basically like another millennium group, but it's, it's, this one is the good one. Um, and he's, he's effectively not that interested, right? He only uses them to kind of get what he wants, which is like information on the millennium group. Um, so it, it I mean, it's funny cause it's, it's kind of like they hand him this perfect out, um, but he's kind of too far into it to, to take it. Um, and and then of course you know then they they kill the guy from from the trust as well, um, in you know again set to music and you know this one's sort of you know the like like he's playing the song on the radio, um, but but again that's that's quite well done and that's overlaid with the speech about like how how unimportant one life is in the scheme of things and you're like you know oh okay this is this is very well done because it's like. Are you meant to take that literally or not? Like, you know, whose side are you on here? Are you on the side of the Millennium Group who are, you know, supposedly looking out for the whole world? And I think in times like this, where we're facing a massive pandemic just like that, how important is one life, right? You know, one life might be gloriously irrelevant if you're trying to save everyone, or we're human beings and we have compassion. One life could be absolutely crucial. Does it depend on who that life is? You know, there's, there's all kinds of great questions that get raised. Um, and and so, you know, it's it's it's... Uh, What I love about it, too, is it doesn't answer the question. Like, it it brings it up and it leaves it for the viewer to kind of ponder and and think about. And and I think that is just perfect.
1: Millennium was sort of canceled after the third year. And they didn't, I don't think they knew they were going to be canceled. Uh, And then they came back in the next season of The X-Files and had a sort of a wrap-up episode for Millennium. Did did that, um, was that a good closure for you, that last episode?
2: No, it was it has a terrible closure. Actually, I, I really don't like that episode. Um, I find it very hard to watch. It it it, it kind of it, I feel like it betrays a lot of the spirit of *Legion*. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you sort of had set up the Millennium Group as being this big overarching thing, and then what's their grand plan? They become four zombies in a basement, and you're like, yeah, this is you know this is not that great. Uh, one one of the fascinating things about *Millennium* is they, they they got this third season that they that's what they didn't expect to have. They didn't think they would get a third season, uh-huh. and so when they end season two they end with the end of the world like it's you know it it is a pretty intense ending and then they have to backtrack and so season three comes along also you know glenn morgan james wong are out like they they go they don't come back um so you know they and there was some sense of like we should retool this back to looking more like the x-files so they relocate frank to the fbi in, in washington dc um and you know they kind of they have to deal with some things like obviously his wife is dead now um and but they also they, they weirdly don't too much. They sort of say, oh, yeah, yeah, that plague thing, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> and then later there's good episode that follows up that says, that kind of goes back for it and, and deals with the aftermath and stuff, which is, is quite powerful. But it, the third season is very problematic because it, it's, it doesn't know what to do in the absence of season two, which has set up so many things and, and been so clever and so nuanced. And it's kind of like, well, let's go on with the kind of X-Files type show. Um, and so it, it has its bright spots for sure, but it, it also has a lot of, you know, kind of awkwardness. Um, and and I think that if season, if season two had been the final season of Millennium, if it had just you know had its two seasons, mm-hmm. it would probably be actually remembered better. I think it would be remembered as this like amazing piece of television that like wow that was that was incredible. And I mean season three of Millennium is a bit like season three of the original Star Trek. You're like okay yeah we got the third season but yeah maybe we didn't need it, <laughs> so maybe it doesn't look <laughs> that to be provided. And then they do this final wrap up in the X Files that, that just I mean. You know, they always say that it's like three television shows for three seasons of Millennium, but the Exiles episode is like a fourth one. It's like this is almost nothing like the rest of Millennium. So, mm-hmm. so you know, and, and I mean, the end of season three is perfectly fine. Like Frank and his daughter, like, you know, they're fleeing like the Millennium group and they jump in the car and they drive off together. And it's this beautiful kind of like off into the sunset kind of ending. Um, and, you know, I don't think we really needed to come back. But, you know, that's that's an issue of television. <laughs>
1: Right. And and, um, yeah, I think it would have been better if it had ended at season two, just to make it different. Um, But if if it had continued past season three, uh, what would you have liked to have seen?
2: Uh, I mean, one of the, one of the revelations about this show was just how good um, Brittany Tiplady is, like who plays his daughter. Yeah, and so I think she's sort of like about seven or so when the show starts. Um, and normally child actors, like you're like eh, okay, but she won awards for you know best young actress and so on. She she is very good, um, and she's sort of you know just around a bit in season one and season two, but season three she really takes over um, because you know, like effectively she's she's almost like his, his co-star in some ways. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he, he has a co-star, but that's, that relationship gets very complicated. Um, and I think season four would have seen a lot more of kind of like developing, you know, kind of what does it mean for her to have her gift? And and when well, we learned that her gift is very similar to, to Lara Means' gift, it's not the same as Frank's. Like she sees angels as well. Um, and, and, you know, like how does, you know, like Frank coping with his gift and, you know, kind of, and he's had multiple breakdowns as well. Um, how does he raise a child who has the same problem and, and not go the same way? Um, you know, that, that I think would have, would have been really interesting. Um, I don't know where they would have gone with the Millennium group itself because they pretty much, by the end of season three, they were just out and out villains. And so in, in some ways their arc was kind of done. Um, I mean, maybe there would have been other ways to, to figure that. Um, but it's kind of a shame, though, that we didn't get the show Millennium passing across the actual millennium like i think that's i mean that's right. why they, they kind of an extra episode of the x-files which was shown the closest possible date to the millennium um but it's just it's just a bit too bad it got canceled like a year too early for that
1: yeah and usually what we ask people is is if uh if this show were to come back do you think it would do well and i don't f- personally i don't think it would do well at all because it, it's so based around the millennium you know unless they brought yeah. it back at the end of you know the 30th century or something but
2: <laughs> I know that's right. It, it's sort of, you know, the, the serial killers are not a, not a big deal anymore. Like like the serial killer as a, as a kind of, you know, boogeyman basically went away with nine eleven. It got replaced by the terrorist. Um, so that's not really a thing anymore. Um, you know, the, the pre-millennial apocalyptic kind of terror. That's not obviously not a factor anymore. Lance Hendrickson is, you know, not a like like he was middle aged at the time. He's, he's an old man now. So so you'd, you'd struggle to have him starring in a TV show. Um you know, maybe they could do a Picard type thing where, you know, he's he's there but, you know, kind of has a younger crew. But but yeah, I don't I don't really see it. I think it's very much a product of its time. Um, and you know, the, like even even cults and stuff. Cults were a big thing in the nineties. They just it's not as, as big a deal anymore. Like I think we somehow have a sense that we it's not that gone away, but like we have a sense that we know what, what that means, and we kind of know how to handle that. I mean, who knows what happens next? And you know, we do seem to be living in another apocalypse right now, so you know, maybe maybe the time <laughs> is right for such a thing. But
1: yeah. Well, before we go, uh, is there anything you'd like to plug?
2: Uh, yes, I'm. I'm uh, as well as the Who was the doctor that came out. Um, I also published a black archive on Doctor Who and the Silurians and so and i and i picked this for very similar reasons i picked millennium uh, because doctor and the silurians has a plague that gets released and you know like the the whole you know country and then later the world kind of you know starts to get infected and you watch people die of this plague and so i the black archive is you know non-fiction kind of more slightly more academic-y um you know ideas about doctor who but you you write a whole book about an individual story um and so i'd written this and it came out Precisely one month before coronavirus kind of spread across the world, so here's me basically talking about you know pandemics, but I'm also talking about kind of you know the the ethics of you know, Doctor Who and the ethics of the third Doctor working with the military. You know, is Doctor Who a science show? Um, you know, can the plague kill us all? Like, like there's lots of different kind of aspects. I essentially took the book as science versus ethics. And so, um, I mean, I talk, I do have a chapter I talk about, like, what's the ideal length for Doctor Who's story? Like, you know, is, is it too long at seven episodes? But otherwise, it's kind of really delving into science and, and you know, What's the point of science at all? What's the point of science in Doctor Who? right? What can science do? What are its limitations? And so on. Um, so, so I'd say, like, you know, if anyone's interested in a little light reading about, you know, an apocalypse caused by a pandemic, <laughs> then, you know, um, <laughs> at least in the context of a 1970 Doctor Who story, uh, which is, you know, it, 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 the book came out for the Salarian's 50th anniversary. Um, so, oh, you cool. know, yeah, uh, that, that's available through um, Obverse Press. So O-B-V-E-R-S-E.
1: All right, cool. I'll have to check that out. That's one of my favorite seasons, season seven.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great season. I mean, it's it's, it's so, so excellent. Uh, and the, the usual complaint is like, oh, but the stories are just a bit too long. Um, and I don't find them too long at all, actually. I, I find this is, you know, you, you need the time to build. Yeah. Uh, because you know, like where you get by the end of the Solerit
1: is very different from where you started. Right. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you?
2: uh i would say i I'm, I'm not a twitter person so i so i don't really have in some sense the public social media um i would say you generally more find me through my books um so yeah if you're interested in those um you can you can check those out i suppose the one thing you can find if you are interested is the doctor who ratings guide which i run um that's a review site where you can send in reviews and and we put them up and so we, we review everything um so anything under the sun goes um, i also do the close to library which is a, a, a website that's um basically a reference guide to Doctor Who novels, um, which is almost complete now. All
1: right. Well, Robert Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. This has been great.
0: And thank you for joining us at Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom, stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify, or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at Company, support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany, or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. This is how it will all end, not with floods,
1: earthquakes, falling comets, Or gigantic crabs roaming the earth. No. Doomsday will start simply out of indifference. I'm sorry. I guess I'm a little bitter because nobody came for me to sign my freaking books!